0: My name is Dr. Tram Jones. Starting in December 2019, my wife and I lived in Haiti. Recently, given the current insecurity, we are out of the country. But we continue to support and work with our partner clinic, Les Moon, with its 53 employees on the ground in the city of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. The year is 1919. A detachment of American Marines have occupied the country of Haiti for five years. The representative of France sends a letter back home to his home country, reporting on conditions. The summary is disturbing. The letter describes that a U.S. Marine officer had recently beaten a 75-year-old woman unconscious in the streets and then had his dog attack her. This same man had imprisoned a local official, torturing him with hot irons, attempting to extract a confession. He had executed four teenagers for minor thefts. Another U.S. officer had gunned down a woman because she refused to give up information. One by one, the observations of the diplomat paint a picture not dissimilar to Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. These stories from the French, a U.S. ally and hardly a friend of Haiti, throw into relief the horrors of the U.S. occupation of Haiti. But five years before, America had invaded Haiti with hopes of stabilizing a country that had been spiraling out of control. How had things turned so badly? As Haiti faces its worst security crisis in decades, and its government begs its neighboring countries to send a military to provide stability, we are in the midst of a multi part series on military interventions in Haiti. As we look through these, the first place we must stop is the American occupation of Haiti from 1915 until 1934. Most Americans don't know that during this 20-year span, several thousand Marines occupied and managed the country of Haiti. Bear with us as we explore this. It is perhaps the most complicated episode of this series. It has a lot of facets, and we had to pick and choose which ones to pursue. Let's place this time period in the long span of Haitian history. Haiti became independent in 1804, the second country in the hemisphere. After the United States. Since independence, Haiti's central government had been chaotic. During one 40-year stretch of the 1800s, the country had 12 revolutions and eight constitutions. Coming into the 1900s, the country was slightly more stable, but something began to happen. The Haitian government, desperate to have foreign investment, ceded wide swaths of land to an American railroad company in exchange for a rail line between major cities. Now, Farmers that lived in these areas were displaced, and those same people then led revolution after revolution. From nineteen eleven to nineteen fifteen, Haiti had seven different leaders, all of whom had taken power by force. The last, President Sam, executed more than a hundred political prisoners, which convinced the crowds of Port-au-Prince to enter his house, pull him into the streets, and rip him apart. So at this point, in nineteen fifteen, Haiti is in chaos. But Even so, why did the US invade? There's really no one answer. So let's map out the constellation of motives. First, the Monroe Doctrine. Now, you may remember this from your high school history class. I'll try not to bore you. The idea dated all the way back to Monroe, our fifth president. He warned European nations not to colonialize countries in our hemisphere. So that's in South or North America. If they tried, we would defend our neighbors. But as some of you know, there has been a later addition to the Monroe Doctrine. Teddy Roosevelt, that swaggering president, stated that if any country in the Western Hemisphere was collapsing and was in danger of not paying their debts, things they had borrowed, the U.S. would step in to create peace. And the idea was that if the U.S. didn't do that, that there would be a threat that a European country would be tempted to take over. So remember that this is 1915. Europe is in the middle of World War I. The US is increasingly being drawn in. At home, the president is terrified that Germany would take advantage of a weak Haiti to gain a foothold in the American backyard. Now put in that light, the causes seem straightforward and maybe even humanitarian. We can protect the Caribbean from Germany and at the same time help a neighbor in a time of crisis. But there were more sinister reasons at play. America owned Haiti's national bank, And some of the biggest proponents for intervention were Northern financiers who felt that Haiti needed to be stabilized in order to ensure that they were paid the money they were owed. As you might remember, in 1825, France had required Haiti to pay an exorbitant sum for its independence. And we talked about this in a prior episode, but Haiti needed to take out loans to pay that. This debt continued and was added onto by infrastructure projects. By 1915, 80%, that's a crazy statistic, of government expenses in Haiti were going to pay its loans. I mean, that's unbelievable. And yet, the Haitian government had never failed to make a payment. Despite their record of paying, the U.S. detached Marines to Port-au-Prince. They entered the National Bank of Haiti and took $500,000 in reserves and transferred them to the United States to ensure that creditors would be paid in the future. Marines took over the customs houses to ensure revenues. And Listen, when a bank loans you money, it has a right to be paid back. However, if Sweden can no longer pay its loans in today's world, the U.S. doesn't just invade and take over the country. The goals and impetuses for the invasion were thus a jumble of natural and malevolent objectives. Haiti was in crisis, and the U.S. wanted to ensure that Germany did not take control. But not publicly stated was the equivalent of a mafioso robbing your house because he thinks you might not pay your loan sharks. The mishmash of motivations, however, allowed everyone to see something different. Many Haitian leaders and prominent African-Americans initially supported the invasion, hoping that the stability might allow the country a new birth. Whatever the mix of reasons, there were more human reasons why the intervention failed. President Wilson, in his infinite wisdom, deployed primarily troops from the American South. While there were some soldiers that weren't ill-behaved, One can imagine that a large detachment of men with guns from a region where black people were not allowed to use the same bathrooms did not do well in a country where the president and every leader was black. It might be sufficient to stop after that sentence to explain why the intervention failed. But even so, let's tell the basic story. Perhaps no country is more affected by their founding than Haiti. Since their independence in 1804, Haiti had never allowed foreigners to own land in the country even going so far as to say that women who married foreigners would lose their Haitian citizenship. Haitians were terrified that their land would be usurped. Once U.S. Marines had landed in Haiti and secured the banks, the next target was that very same land provision. The military coerced the country to pass a new constitution, one that would allow Americans to buy land. And the Americans then put this constitution to a vote. Now, in the style of Vladimir Putin, For North Korea, polling stations had armed U.S. soldiers hand out yes ballots, while voters would have to request no ballots. Unsurprisingly, the referendum passed 98,000 to 700. Once the Constitution was fixed, the couple thousand strong Marine force fanned out across the country. As they moved, their next step was to create roads and rail lines throughout the country. Now, on the surface, this was to spur the economy. And it even seems benevolent. But a hidden reason was that American troops were having difficulty accessing the country to subdue it. The building of roads and railroads had at least three major effects, which would play a role in the coming years. First, it centralized the country. Prior to the invasion, Haitian power was very dispersed. It was very difficult to get from one major city to another, and thus each department was run nearly autonomously. The average Haitian farmer owned their own land and interacted only with local officials. While the national government sustained frequent revolutions, these rarely really affected the citizens because there was little control by the federal government. When the Americans came, roads and railroads allowed the national government more power. The system became very top-down, with much less power for each department. Now, that might have been a good thing if you had a benevolent federal government, but as we know from Haitian history, That has almost never been the case. As we look at Haiti now, Port-au-Prince is the heart of everything in Haiti. If you want a passport, want to start a business, want to go to a good school, want to buy major equipment, you have to go to the capital. Children are sent to Port-au-Prince to have a chance at the future and a good job, instead of staying in their hometowns. And when they fail, they often join the growing ranks of gangs. And this all dates back to unintended consequences of the occupation. So the first effect was centralization. The second effect was that the building of roads, in combination with the new constitution, facilitated American businesses coming to Haiti. Now, on the surface, foreign investment is a good thing. Jobs can do a lot for a country. But in the heart of Haitian culture, land is everything. If you have land, you're an owner and not an employee. Under the auspices of military occupation, American businesses seized land, displacing farmers, and then employing them, the power dynamic shifted in the same way that a small business owner might feel dejected when he finds himself out of business and working for the local Walmart. Third, and most importantly, in order to build those roads, the U.S. government used a long forgotten law in Haiti, the ability to enlist what's called corvée labor. Soldiers could force nearby villagers to become part of work gangs, In theory, the villagers would be fed, clothed, and paid. Well, that was the theory. During a later U.S. Senate hearing, it became clear that a large majority of workers were forced to work at gunpoint and then held in work camps. When they tried to escape, they were shot. One Baptist missionary testified that he felt more Haitians died from corvée labor than from any of the fighting. In the years prior to invasion, Haitians had dubbed rural outlaws by the term cacao, These outlaws had been the ones that year after year had launched revolutions with displaced farmers to overthrow the government. Few citizens were fans of these criminals, but as the American troops enslaved many of the population, the cacaos became viewed as freedom fighters. And it's reductive to view the cacaos heroically. These former outlaws raided villages for food and created mayhem, but their popularity highlights how unpopular the Americans had become. Over the next six years, the U.S. would fight two cacao wars, finally taking complete control of the country. By the 1920s, abuses of Haitians were becoming an international scandal. Candidate for U.S. president Harding won election by tarring his opponents with the vicious stories that were leaking. He began to refer to the operation as the rape of Haiti. U.S. Senate hearings were rife with terrible examples. Haitian priests crucified. Large crowds of civilians mowed down by machine guns. When cacao shot at soldiers in a region, the marines would burn the surrounding villages. When one U.S. soldier was put on trial for ordering two Haitian prisoners to dig their own graves and then executing them, the marine officer defending him insisted that the soldier was not guilty because such actions were commonplace. It's common now for casual historians to view the occupation of Haiti in the same light as Nazi Germany. It's seen as colonialism, pure and simple, wrapped up in the evil designs from the start. But when we label something as purely evil, we're rarely able to learn from it. We can't imagine ourselves going down this path. So let's try and look at this from the human perspective. The US entered with a mix of intentions. To many supporters, they hoped that the situation would improve in Haiti, giving it a new birth. However, there was a very real underlying desire to ensure that Haiti continued to pay its debts and opened its economy to US business. And no matter the rhetoric, local people can always sniff out ulterior motives. And this can turn an occupation into a nightmare. No matter what our media said, no matter how much we tried to help, the Iraqi people had a deep suspicion that the Iraq war was fought for oil. A humanitarian war becomes increasingly challenging when the locals suspect their safety and security isn't really the primary objective. Unfortunately, after the initial invasion, The suspicions of the Haitians were confirmed when they met the behavior of the soldiers. The more an international force views itself as above the local population instead of working with it, the more resistance it will face. Mistakes will be made in any military operation. Civilians will be hurt or die. But will the local population view these as the mistakes of a well-meaning, friendly country? Or will it confirm their preconceived notions that this invasion was really only for ulterior motives? In 1934, after 20 years of fighting, accompanied by Senate hearings, investigations and a stain on U.S. military tradition, the American flag was lowered for the final time in Haiti. Our soldiers loaded up their boats and returned home, unsure of what they had accomplished. Many wrote books and memoirs renouncing their time in Haiti, wondering what it was all for. As the world considers a new intervention in Haiti, we need to remember these things we must make certain that we have the support of the Haitian people and that they view us as truly on their side. In all things, if troops are on the ground, they should be working hand-in-hand with Haitians, not simply trying to make them follow us. Otherwise, we risk 4th failed intervention. In making this podcast, we are indebted to the excellent book, Haiti, Aftershocks of History, by Laurent Dubois. Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from life here. We are simply telling stories as we've seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a rich history. And there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets. And we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names may have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about the work of Light from Light in Haiti or to get involved, visit us on the web at lightfromlight.me. Thank you and God bless.